Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Lena Patel and we'll be exploring the differences between US and Australian not-for-profit boards and governance. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record. For me, that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I acknowledge their continuing connections to land, waters and culture and pay my respects to elders past and present. As people who listen to this podcast will know, I support the Uluru Statement from the heart. I'll be voting yes in the upcoming referendum and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Lena. Lena Patel is a startup board member for Global Impact Australia and we'll find out a bit more about that in a moment. She's a Melbourne-based facilitator and poet. Lena works with people who value positive social outcomes and want to improve how they work and her specialty is getting things done calmly. We all need a bit of Lena in our life, I think. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Lena. Thank you, Halia. So wonderful to be here and in conversation with you. Hooray. So in fact, Lena and I first connected, gosh, I don't even know. Years ago. Years ago when I was the (laughs) co-chair of the Centre for Sustainability Leadership and Lena was on the facilitation team there. So I love it when the little circles come back around again years later and we get to have this conversation. But before we talk about, whilst I'm really keen to talk about those differences between US and Australian not-for-profit boards and governance, let's not go there quite yet. I always like to dig a little deeper about the person I have here. So tell me, where were you born and where did you grow up? And tell me about your siblings and your family. Well, I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa, and we emigrated, our whole family emigrated to Australia when I was nine or 10 years old. And where we landed was on the traditional lands of the Wadi Wadi people in a city called Wollongong, which is on the east coast of Australia and about an hour and a half south of Sydney. So we had one auntie who was living here who who sponsored our migration and she was in Wollongong. And so we ended up in Wollongong and that's how I grew up in Wollongong. And it was a really delightful place to grow up. It's it's a small city. You're kind of geographically bounded by the ocean to the east and the an escarpment. So it's sort of this 
mountain range or hills to the west. So very clear where the city begins and ends. Beautiful beaches, an amazing place as a kid. And I'm one of four. And I was the middle child for, you know, until I was 13. And then our younger sister arrived. And so I don't know. I, I mean, I still really hang on to my middle child identity, even though I think technically I'm, I'm not the middle child. Well, you're a middle child, maybe. I'm what, yeah, it's like shared with my brother that who's only 18 months, that we're, we're very close in age, only 18 months difference. And so, yeah, we're like co-middle child. <laughs> I, well, actually, I made, as the youngest, he was formerly the youngest, I imagine that's even more of a transition. You go from being the youngest, which being a youngest child myself is quite frankly an awesome place to be, to being the middle child, which in our family goes from being the, you know, youngest get away with anything you like to being Switzerland and having to kind of manage all of the family dynamics. <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling my brother never really let go of being the youngest child. So he still kind of like operates as though he's the youngest child. And yeah, it's got, it's, you know, it's big energy, that young child, the youngest child energy. I'm going to ask a stupid question here. Like you talked about Wollongong and you said that was the lands of the Wadi Wadi, I think. Yeah. You were born in Kenya. Yeah. Is this acknowledgement of First Nations people and so on, is that only, inverted commas, in colonised countries? Yeah. Right. Great. Excellent. (laughs) I mean, Kenya was colonised as well. So it would be remiss of me not to mention that my peoples, so on my mother's side, we are Dowdy Bahora Muslims. Um, So we're... I guess, would be considered the Indian diaspora in Kenya, in East Africa. And really, my peoples were a colonial proxy. So even though I'm led to believe our families, you know, I'm eighth generation Kenyan, but I think in our family, there are people who came across when the colony, you know, the British colony came and took up residency in East Africa and largely benefited from that. So socioeconomically, we're a minority in Kenya, but I would say economically a majority, and that this is like 100% connected to colonisation in East Africa. But as to whether that acknowledgement happens, like that isn't something that I grew up with. In And also, you know, I really only, I feel like it's only something, it's actually when I was doing the, um, the Centre for Sustainability Leadership Program about 10 years ago in 2014, you know, I was in my, oh, what, I was in like my mid-30s at the time, and I really hadn't even up until then, had to engage with things like that was the first time I did an acknowledgement of country ever. (laughs) You say you didn't grow up with an acknowledgement of country, neither did I. And I've lived in Australia my whole life. It was absolutely not a thing when I was young. And like you say, I think it's probably only the last maybe even five to 10 years. 10 years ago, I think it started happening and probably over the last kind of three to five years, it's become pretty commonplace to happen. But it's definitely not something I grew up with and I don't think most people in Australia grow up with it either. Yeah, and what, what I love is that because I so pay attention to where I am in terms of whose country I'm on, so I'm, you know, as I'm speaking to you on Bunurong country, I'm in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, also part of the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation, I begin to notice the difference between country just travelling across Melbourne. Like, it's very noticeable to me. Bunurong country does feel different to Wurundjeri country to me, and I have a very very low basic level of understanding of these things. So when I get to travel into state, it's like, wow, I'm I'm like on a completely different country. And that's just kind of amazing to me. And yeah. 
Thanks for giving us some of that background. Actually, one thing before we get off background, you're on the board of Global Impact Australia. That's right. Tell us a little bit about that organisation. Well, it is consists of the board and colleagues in the US. So I'll go back to Global Impact, the sort of the larger organisation that we're part of um, based in the US. So Global Impact has been around for close to 70 years, so really well-established organisation in the US, established in the mid-50s and initially in the workplace giving space. So that was kind of their sort of initial focus. Fast forward 40 years, in the mid-90s, they were, you know, in terms of the scale of the service they were providing, they were administering the US federal government annual workplace giving campaign. So you can imagine kind of in terms of scale and the sort of skill and infrastructure needed to run something like that, you know, the size of organization, then kind of over the last kind of couple of decades, they really sort of expanded and grown their service offering in the US. And largely, they're providing a service to the philanthropic sector in the US. Workplace giving um, seems to be a much bigger thing in the US than it is here in Australia. And they've got all of that kind of infrastructure there in place. Global Impact Australia came about in, I think it was like 2018, and very much an, an idea spearheaded and, and the idea has been really led by the CEO of Global Impact, Scott Jackson, who is a remarkable person, has this incredible life story and one of the most present CEOs I've encountered given the size of Global Impact. So Scott is in attendance at all of the Global Impact Australia meetings, uh, the board meetings, and has very much led the various activities to form up Global Impact Australia, which has met largely registration type activities. So they're kind of very like necessary but boring administrative processes, lots of forms, registering with the ACNC, registering as, as a company and, and all the different bits and pieces to form up the, the company structure here. And along the way in 2019, Global Impact merged with the, um, I think it was Geneva Global. So they were going through a big kind of merger out of the US Things were kind of slow because the registration process was really drawn out for us. So we were this sort of startup board for three years where we were like, are we on? What's going on? Like, have the forms gone in? Like, what's the next step? Like, caught in this, like, really interesting bureaucratic process. Meanwhile, Global Impact also has UK and Canada operations, and they sprung up and they're doing things in those regions. And then, you know, I was thinking on the timeline and I thought, I think it was 2022 when the Australian board members, like we renewed our vows and we committed to another, you know, a further three years uh, together. Even That is such a <laughs> lovely way of putting it. <laughs> and we were like, it'll have been a slow three years, but, you know, we've got our registration in place. Like I feel like the next three years, we're going to be more building out the business. And so what Global Impact Australia, what our focus is, and we've been working on this kind of working out our niche in Australia um, the last few months, really around connecting local change-making work that's happening with global philanthropy. So really providing a way for local communities who are working on global issues to access global philanthropy and then providing those ways in which this money can move, remain on the right side of the law, again, into local projects, but bringing that global money in. Now, finally, turning to our topic for today, you did some research around the differences between US and Australian not-for-profit boards and governance. Tell us a bit about what that research was and what you found. 
Yeah, so where my interest in this started was, you know, we were at the point where we had, you know, as I mentioned, renewed our vows. We knew we were going to be serving another three years together. And I just want to give a, a shout out to my the other board members. So we've got Scott Jackson as the CEO of Global Impact, who is in attendance and participates in, in all our board meetings. The chair of our board, David Impey, current CEO of the Community Enterprise Foundation at Bendigo Bank. So it brings this real wealth of that sort of foundation experience. Dr. Steve Francis is a managing director at, at uh, DGB and really like career fundraising person. So again, people with like this fundraising and philanthropic sector experience. Phil Volkowski does consulting in governance and culture. And then Jason Henham, who is a Aussie in the US, who was the person who actually pulled this board together. So Jason has, again, had decades of experience working with not-for-profits, both in Australia and the US, as a consultant. And largely speaking, he, he has worked as an interim CFO, and so has been really inside some like very large not-for-profits and philanthropies and seeing the workings of these organizations from that sort of um, CFO level. And Jason, as a trusted advisor to Scott, recommended all of us in. So the topic was really Jason's pet topic. <laughs> and all these years was thinking about these differences between the way boards of not-for-profits in Australia govern differently to boards of not-for-profits in the US. I mean, it's like such a niche set of things like, yeah, how does that happen? And then what are the implications for what becomes possible through the not-for-profit sector? And really looking at, at the role that boards and board governance plays in the impact that organizations have. So ultimately, what my interest in, in this is, well, I'm a collaboration designer as well. And so I'm really, really interested in how people work together. And here I was on a new team and a team that I hadn't chosen to join, but I absolutely am so delighted and love being part of. And I know that one of the things that teams become undone over is cultural differences. So early enough in our working relationship with the US management team, and we're an Australian board, we're early enough in our working relationship that it might be useful to talk about the ways in which our worlds are very different. So what the management team in the US might expect from us and how they operate, I was already noticing differences, like nothing major, but for example, I noticed that Scott and his team in the US were very involved in this registration process, the Australian registration process. And my expectation was like, that's why we're here. Like we should be able to take that on, even though we're not like in paid roles in the in the board. And the balance of labor was, I was kind of like, this is too easy. I hardly have to do anything. And and I think we were all very tentative and new to this and working out the, the working relationship. So that was one of the first things that kind of tipped me off, like, oh, I wonder if they know that they could actually ask more of us. Or I wonder what it is that they see their role as as management versus us as the board and then I think just trying to unfold that question it was like oh there are cultural differences like the way boards operate in the US pretty different to the way boards operate in Australia or not-for-profits and so as a professional facilitator I also felt like the contribution I could make to my colleagues 
not having anywhere near the kind of philanthropy, fundraising know-how. It was also thinking about like, what is the strength that I bring? Um, I'm pretty good at helping people work through complexity to arrive at new shared understanding. So that was also something I really wanted to offer to my other board colleagues. So we made a workshop. (laughs) We made this interactive workshop. It was really beautiful. We spent three months very, very slowly unfolding what aspect of the differences would be useful and constructive to highlight. So Jason and I had a, had a really, really, we were very clear that we didn't want to set up an us and them dynamic. Like what we wanted to do was explore the strengths. So yes, there are differences, but we didn't want to kind of in any sort of way end up in a well, they don't know what they're doing or there's reasons why these differences exist and we really wanted to surface them and have them in discussion from a strengths-based perspective. I don't know if that answered your question, but. (laughs) It's interesting, you know, I'd started this conversation of thinking that it'd be interesting to know what those differences were, but what I'm hearing is that you and this board, you've spent time in exploring what those differences are. So there's actually lessons. Yes, there are some differences. Yes, it would be interesting to hear what those are. But in fact, this is a story about getting boards almost on the same page when there's different cultures involved, whatever those different cultures might be. Um, They might be from different countries. They might be from different backgrounds. They might be just, just inverted commas from different ways of working. But this is actually a how do we all just get on the same page so that we know what we're doing? Yeah, it was a bit of a Trojan horse. Like, I don't think they would have come to a workshop on let's, you know, and, well, I'm, I'm sure they would have been open to it, but we really needed to put content that was very pertinent to how we work together. And I was reflecting on this because, I mean, I do have six points I will share. And these are the six points that Jason has discovered in his 15 to 20 years of thinking about this. Very thankful to Jason for sort of summarizing these six points. And when I was looking back at the workshop we ran, okay, so the six points took up 15 minutes of, I think we did a 60 or 90 minute workshop. So content wise, I mean, we could have sent that in an email, right? But actually, now this is very much the like (laughs) revealing my bias. I don't know how you as a group navigate and explore difference without giving it a little bit of room and a bit of space. There was pre-reading. I had the pre-meeting with pretty much all, I think I met with all of the board members in my pre-meeting, you know, under the guise of checking the design. But really, I just wanted to, I hadn't really connected with the other board members. So these incredible chats I had with each of the board members about how they saw this particular issue, what they were worried about. I would encourage any person who's like maybe even new to a board just invent a workshop and go through the design process with hopefully one other board member. We met, I think it was once a week or once a fortnight for three months. So it was this luxurious process with Jason of unpacking these things. And I feel like we landed a really sharp experience that led to some very, very helpful things nobody really wanted to mention, like we're never going to pay to be on this board as Australian board members, as you know, one of the differences I feel most people might know about is that we don't have pay to play on not-for-profit boards. There were other things there, but I feel like find a reason to run a workshop and then it gives you an excuse (laughs) 
to have a little chat to everyone out of session and then you get to have this experience that hopefully unlocks something new like in your togetherness. Oh my god it is such a and it's such a proactive way of looking at your induction in a way as well. It's like, oh, I'm new on this board. How can I get to know each other? Often directors, I think, and in fact, I've thought about it in this way. This is opening my eyes to new ways of doing things. You often wait for, oh, I'm the new person. They'll organise this meeting. They'll organise that meeting. You don't need to wait, folks. And in fact, I've definitely done that. I've reached out to new people or as the new person reached out. But induction doesn't have to be a reactive process it can be a proactive process and I love it find a workshop find a point that you want to have a conversation about yeah I did have a genuine curiosity and what it was was it started with me kind of being like hey Jason how does stuff work in that you know you've been working in the US for a while we met back in 2009 or 2010 we both worked at NAB for a year on on a transformation program together and then stayed in touch over the years And so I knew he was somebody I could just like ask those very naive questions and not feel, yeah, the stupid questions. And so I was like, I know there's a difference. I'm sure you've noticed a difference. Could you help me understand? And then as we went on, I was like, oh, you're like really into this. (laughs) Like you're like really into this topic. Well, I would love to learn. I would love all of us to learn together because I'm just that way inclined as a facilitator, I'm pretty good at the workshop thing. So let me bring that to this, put some, you know, the frame around it. And yeah, we just had such a fun time putting it together. I really enjoyed the session. We've got snippets of the recordings. I was looking back over and I went, that was a good workshop. (laughs) That was a good discussion. (laughs) Amazing. And I, I even love your question in there. Could you help me understand even in board meetings or learning about the other people that you have around you. It's such a beautiful question. All right. I have to ask about the six things. Yes. Tell me about the six things. What did you, what, okay. what did you find? The six things, according to my mate, Jace. <laughs> so yes, again, all credit to Jason Hennem for surfacing these. Number one, board size. Broadly speaking in the US, it's not unusual for a board to have 12 plus. So we're talking not-for-profit here, so not-for-profit context. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual for a board to be 12 plus, whereas in, in Australia, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything bigger than 10, right? So it's generally less than 10. And the Global Impact Australia board, we've got one, two, three, four, there's five of us and Scott. So number one, board size. Number two, meeting regularity. In the US, Three, max four meetings a year. Whereas in Australia, it would be unusual to have less than six. Some not-for-profits do meet monthly and depending on what's going on for the organisation. So, yeah, it would be really unusual for there to be six, you know, less than six. Whereas in the US, it's like four is like getting to the top end of, of how many meetings. Number three, the director role in fundraising. So I I hinted at this before. It might be the, you know, quite commonly known, but in case it's not, in the US, there is an expectation that directors of not-for-profit boards make personal contributions. And in Australia, personal contributions are quite rare. They're welcome, but they're quite rare. So a couple of things around that. So there's a a few phrases which came up were a pay-to-play. So where there is a minimum amount as a US board member that you are donating, like you are buying your board seat in a sense. And the other way I heard it put, and this was from Anita Whitehead, who's the chair of the Global Impact US board. 
and Anita also leads the KPMG Foundation and Corporate Citizenship Service in KPMG US. And Anita was, I was telling us another way that this is framed is give or get. So you've got as a US board member a target and you either give it from your money or you fundraise it. And we're talking about amounts like ten to $50,000 per year per board member. And, and an interesting thing that came up during the session, which I was like, wow, that is very different. Scott was mentioning that within the US, so remembering that Global Impact is serving charity partners, so they're, they're very much in this space operationally, it's considered best practice or how did he put it? Funders actually look for 100% director funded. Like, so if you're not 100% director funded, then that counts against you. And that, that is like, that just blows my mind. A hundred percent director funded. I imagine for the Americans listening to this, they're just like, yeah. And for the Australians listening, like you and I were just like, whoa, that is just wow. so foreign. That it's, is a, so it's foreign. It's a foreign concept. Yeah. You can see how if you're looking for like large proportion of your funding to come from directors, you can see how that has that result in larger board sizes, right? So the more people you have, the more fundraising avenues you have. There's also implication there for the culture and the motivation. So in Australia, because we're not paying to participate, there's different motivations as to why one might want to be a board member. One might, one might want to serve on a board. One thing that, you know, in terms of motivation, so for your larger not-for-profits so in the US, the kind of more prestigious organisations, there's visibility and network, right? So if there is prestige involved with that. And I'm sure there's prestige in the, you know, in particular not-for-profits in Australia. You know, it's certainly not for how much you are paying to, <laughs> to participate, right? There's just a different place from which that prestige comes from. Yeah. And so a larger board gives you an increased fundraising base. Now, I mean, obvious, but worth mentioning, if you need to pay to be on a board, you can imagine what the implications are for equity and diversity, right? So, okay. I'm so I glad mean, you went there. That kind of money. <laughs> I made a note here before going, what about diversity? Interesting. Yeah. When looking at, at the makeup of boards, I think if you didn't know these differences, it just might not be clear to you why the makeup of boards is different or how people conduct themselves is different, right? Like the difference between me having put forward $50,000 to be on this board versus little old me, self-employed, independent facilitator, you know, <laughs> dreaming up workshops, very, very different way in which we would be showing up in our roles. And so both of these have strengths. And so, you know, we, we kind of got to really speak directly to that. Like, what are the strengths? Well, when you are making personal contributions, like you are really backing that organization, right? The directors are like bought into in quite a different way because you are bankrolling that not-for-profit. So in a way, you kind of really got to believe in the thing. And again, not to say that if that's absent, you don't believe in the thing, but yeah, it just, it just brings in a, a different sort of sense of commitment for a particular cause. Okay, so board size, meeting regularity, director role in fundraising. Number four, formality. So I had never heard of the Roberts Rules of Order. I heard about them for the first time a year ago when we were designing this workshop and I looked them up and it's a real kind of parliamentary approach to meetings. So U.S. board meetings generally 
follow the Roberts Rules of Order, whereas the way meetings are conducted in Australia are, are not consistently formal. So there is a structure to them. It's not that they're informal, but it's not like you could go to any board meeting and it would be run the same or have that same pattern. So as a facilitator, I found that really fascinating. It's like, ah, I was chatting with actually someone we both know, Laura Hamilton O'Hare, who was a, another colleague of ours at uh, Centre for Sustainability Leadership and is now the CEO of Living Futures Institute Australia. And they operate in the same thing where there's a US you know, counterparts in Australia. And we discovered we're governance geeks. And in my chats with her in the lead up, she was saying how there is such a, a difference in tone. So the Australian board are very playful and joke around, and that can be quite shocking to their US colleagues as to how friendly banter. So that's just a small thing. And so when we unpacked this, I noticed our board meetings, we're a bit more mindful and we'll signal to our US colleagues that, okay, in Australia, we have this term of endearment or when we're like making jokes on the board meetings, we're a little bit more sensitive to not being too irreverent and actually just letting our US colleagues know that we're whatever. And it's it's nothing major, but it's it's a difference. Yeah, and being mindful of it. It's so, yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> I'm going to look up the uh, Robert's Rules of Order too. Robert's Rules of Order, yeah. Well, again, we'll put a link to it in the show notes if people want to have a look at it. Yes. <laughs> Number five, skills mix. So in the US, where you have, so we're paying to be on the board or there's a fundraising requirement from directors, we've then got bigger boards. So what happens is with the skills mix is that there tends to be this thing in the US where depending on what the not-for-profit does, you're going to have a lot of people from that sector. So if it's an education-related organization, you're going to have a lot of educators on there. If it's a health thing, you're going to have a lot of health professionals. Whereas in Australia, we have more of a governance or operation competency. So, you know, you've kind of got your classic skills matrix. Some of these guys are very experienced in philanthropy and fundraising. But there's also that need for like someone who's across risk and across finance and across legal and, and I guess then fundraising because that's like a particular operational area. So the competency-based recruitment, or you've probably got better words for this. It's a skills-based board in a way and, and meeting that skills matrix and yep. at least here in Australia, often the skills yep. matrix is based around industry skills, which might be your educators, yep. your health people and so on and other technical skills and governance skills and the attributes that are needed right. in the boardroom. Yeah, so I get the feeling the attributes bit may not be as much of a priority mm. and the skills for US not-for-profits may tend more towards sector yes. domain skill yeah, as opposed to technical skill. And the thing that came up in, in our discussion last year was that in the last 10 years, there's sort of more diversity on boards. And I'm not sure what the kind of cultural imperative has been in the US that's driving that. And so, yeah, there's a bit more diversity on, on boards and that might be in the, in the skill space. And the last one, number six, risk management and compliance. So broadly speaking, Australian boards have more of a focus and an interest, more airtime is taken up on risk management and compliance. 
there's more like literal board processes when you're setting up a board and the board responsibilities. Yeah, Australian boards tend to focus more on that than US boards might. And I think where we got to with that is that that is maybe more held by management. So in the US, that risk management and compliance is a much more management organizational level thing. Whereas, yeah, I mean, that the first thing I think about in terms of governance is risk management. <laughs> so it's just really interesting. It's like, wow, isn't that why you, why you have a board? Oh, that is so interesting. And it's, you know, again, I'm an Australian director. I mostly speak to Australian directors. So some of it sounds quite literally foreign. You know, often if I'm speaking to for-purpose boards, up front I'll say I'm not a fan of the pay-to-play rules or the guidelines or whatever. Like I think it really limits who you have in your boardroom and it impacts those other things like the skills that you will get in the boardroom, like the diversity you would get in the boardroom and quite possibly the, I would say, the responsibilities that directors have around risk and compliance as well as all of the other things. So it feels like they kind of go together in a way and possibly even the number of meetings as well and, as you've already said, the number of directors. And it's interesting. I just wonder why if I was talking to an Australian board and they're like, oh, we want to put some of this stuff in place, I often say to them, ambassadors, like have an ambassador program or something along those lines. If people want to give to the organisation, that's awesome and you want to engage them but they don't need to be in the boardroom because being in the boardroom comes with directors responsibilities and they're going to need to do that sort of stuff so are there other ways of doing it so yeah that is so interesting yeah and just to say these points all have a whole heap of data behind them there's a whole heap of kind of research that and Jason's kind of 15 to 20 years experience working in the sector in these two two places and part of that workshop we did this very light literature review where Jason and I kind of went and found, you know, he had a bunch of stuff in his, you know, library and I went and found a bunch of stuff because essentially it was going to be reading I was going to, I felt I had to do anyway. We kind of pretty much just made the whole board <laughs> do the reading. We found some fantastic articles, which I'm happy to share and link to in the in the show notes around just some like really, really great bits of research specifically to the not-for-profit sector which more or less explain why those mechanisms make sense, like why they are fit for purpose. So, and you know, then that was the thing we really adamant around taking a strengths-based approach and saying, okay, well, there just are differences. There's a whole heap of kind of cultural and historical reasons why these differences exist. How do we work with those differences? And how do we, like, there's going to be times when you're going to expect us to operate in a different way to that we're accustomed to. Let's at least know why that might be the case, like why you might get pushback from us. So this is between the management team and the board, why we might think we should be doing something. So yeah, I'm happy to share those articles that just really opened my eyes to, oh yeah, that completely makes sense. Oh, Lena, I feel like we've had two stories here in a way. One is about your journey of joining the board and understanding the board. And one is about the lessons that were learned from that kind of research, I guess. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? So key takeaway would be, firstly, if you're on a specifically on a Australian-based not-for-profit, this might be also applicable to for-profits, but I think especially if you're in an Australian not-for-profit, that has a connection to or works with US counterparts, be aware that there are major differences in the not-for-profit governance and board roles. And those six differences are firstly, 
you're going to encounter different board size. Secondly, meeting regularity is going to be different. Thirdly, directors have a very different roles in fundraising. Fourth, there's going to be different levels of formality in how the actual meetings are conducted. Fifth, skills mix will be different and what is prioritised in these two different locations will be different. And lastly, the boards will have different levels of focus on risk management and compliance. So my first takeaway. My second takeaway, regardless of whether you're working across different um, jurisdictions, there well may be cultural differences that exist on your board. And a board, in the end, it is a team, right? You're not just like a random group of people who sometimes meet and make decisions. You're a team that plays a very important role in the running of that organization and in guiding and supporting the organization that you're there to in service of. Really encourage you to take the time to explore what those cultural differences might be and how it might press upon the way you work as a team and what it is that might be points of tension for you as a as a cross-cultural team. And I mean we've talked about resources already, but is there is there any other resources, maybe I'll put it that way, any other resources you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Sure. The two that I found really beneficial around this kind of US-Australia difference was there's a 2021 report called Leading with Intent. And it's a report on US not-for-profit board composition, practices, performance, and culture. And that particular report was based on responses and feedback from not-for-profit CEOs and board chairs in the US. And it's a hefty read, but the start of each chapter has a beautiful summary of the major points in that chapter. So you can just kind of skim the first part of each chapter, and that's called Leading with Intent. There may be one for 2023, I'm not sure, but when we were working on this, the 2021 was the most recent one. And then if you're curious about the strengths of the Australian not-for-profit governance context, so we provided reading for both sides, if that makes sense. Highly recommend the AICD, so the Australian Institute of Company Directors, not-for-profit governance principles. So again, a sort of a hefty document, but the first 10 pages of that NFP governance principles document, the first 10 pages provides really great outline of the principles. And if you sit those two documents side by side, you will learn a lot about um, the strengths. Oh, that is fantastic. Lena, thank you. There is so much in there. Like I say, I feel like we've got two episodes for the price of one there. One about proactive induction into the boardroom and ways of making those connections. And secondly, about some of the lessons that you learned from that process. So thank you so much for being open to sharing some of that wisdom with the Take On Board community today. I really appreciate it. And I know the community will take a lot from it as well. So thank you. Thanks, Helia. And if anyone would like this discussion with their board members, I would love to support them with that. I think it's really important. So thank you. And thank you, Helia, for bringing these conversations. All of the, I've been so enjoying working my way through the um, back catalogue. It's been an absolute delight knowing there's like a governance geek out, Melbourne-based, you know, podcast. What a treat. How lucky are we? I was thinking before when you said Laura and you share the governance geek, I'm like, oh, Centre for Sustainability, Leadership, Alumni, Governance Geeks. That's a little subset of it. Love it. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Lena. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women and gender diverse people together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group 
an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd also really love it if you could do some of the other, well, podcast things. Share the podcast with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.